0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chabner. It's really a pleasure to be here today to talk about some of the microfluidic technologies that I've developed as part of a a larger team here at Mass General Hospital. So first, I'd like to start off with some disclosures. So I do have some paid advisory positions, and there have been some patents issued or pending for the technology presented today. Um, My spouse is employed by BioVentus, and we have stock in that area. And then the research is funded by NIH, NIBIB, American Cancer Society, and the Wang Brain Tumor Foundation. So I'd like to start off with the problem that we're trying to address. Earlier this morning, we'd been talking about, look, the idea of using biomarkers to help guide treatment for patients. And what I want to do as a mechanical engineer is to develop technology so that we can more sensitively and specifically pull out those biomarkers from whole blood. Now, the particular interests that I have are on circulating tumor cells, or CTCs, as I'll refer to them throughout the talk, and extracellular vesicles. And so these circulating tumor cells are simply that, tumor cells that circulate around in the bloodstream, they'll break off from the primary tumor and then turn off and travel around. Now the challenge of circulating tumor cells, as many of you know, is that they're extraordinarily rare. They can be as rare as one in a billion cells, which presents a huge technological challenge. Now, from these individual cells, tiny little vesicles are also shed off from these CTCs, and those are referred to as extracellular vesicles or exosomes or oncosomes. There's a million different names that are used, but throughout this talk, I'm just going to refer to them as extracellular vesicles. So to try to first approach the idea of these whole cells that are circulating around in the bloodstream, we wanted to develop some microfluidic technologies to try to get that needle in the haystack. I'm not going to talk too much about the technologies today because Daniel Haber will be presenting later in the session, and I believe he'll be going over some of these technologies the circulating uh, tumor cell ICHIP technology. But simply I wanted to say the first approach that we took was... When we were thinking about that needle-in-a-haystack approach, we wanted to say we know what that needle looks like. We know what antigens are present on the surface, we can target those antigens and pull them out from all of those billions of other unwanted cells. So we took what was referred to as a positive selection approach and we developed microfluidics so that we can precisely control every cell as it's going through the device so that we can pull out those rare tumor cells and let the rest travel through. So we had two different technologies that we did. Stanitha Negrath had developed the micropost technology, and then I had worked on the staggered herringbone technology, but simply we're just manipulating blood so that we can pull out those tumor cells. What we had learned as we were doing this is that CTCs are largely heterogeneous. There was no one size or flavor for these cells. Here we have a lung cancer patient on one day, one draw. We have a variety of different sizes of the tumor cells, which are shown in green, relative to the white blood cells. We could also see proliferating CTCs, CTCs covered in platelets, even these large aggregates or clusters of CTCs. So as we were learning more about the biology of these cancer cells, we decided to then change and adapt our technology in a later generation of a device. So this is the CTC iChip. I'm not going to go into too many of the details about how this technology works, but what I would say is that it's basically three different microfluidic technologies in one. And what it's effectively doing is rather than targeting that needle in the haystack, we're saying, we don't know exactly what that needle looks like, but we know what all the hay looks like. We know what the platelets look like, the white blood cells. We want to pull all of those things out of the sample, and then then we'll recover all of the cancer cells. Now, there'll be some other contaminating cells that will come out as well that may be rare circulating in the blood, but that will allow us to not make any presumptions about what's going on with the tumor. So we've been developing this, led by Daniel's, uh, Dr. Daniel Haber, Mehmet Toner, and Shamla Mehishwaran. And we now have a chip that can process 10 to 20 milliliters of whole blood a second, which translates to 20 to 30 million cells per second as it travels through the chip. So each cell has a dwell time of about two seconds as it enters the chip before it exits. These chips are now mass produced. And you can see here, they're manufactured by the same technology that makes Blu-ray devices. Um, And we can have them in the laboratory so that we can process hundreds to potentially thousands of patients. But what I want to talk to you about is our effort of using liquid biopsy. And I'm first going to start off with the CTC story, which is why I have showed you a little bit of the technology. And I will go back to one of those technologies that I just shared with you for the exosome work. I want to talk about what we've been trying to do for improving prognosis and glioblastoma. This is work that I've done in partnership with Dr. Brian Nayhead, where he is a surgeon who is at Mass General who is frequently removing tumors and uh, guides me in all of the clinical questions. Now, one of the things that I've learned uh, is that glioblastomas are a very aggressive form of brain cancer, universally fatal. Diagnosis relies on a very invasive procedure. And there's very few biomarkers and tools for disease uh, surveillance. This is a prime opportunity for looking at liquid biopsy to learn more about this cancer. Now, one of the things, though, that um, we've been learning about brain tumors is that, originally, just simple pathology was used to understand the tumors. But as we've um, progressed and learned more about these tumors, there's now a host of molecular uh, markers that we can use to characterize the tumor and its aggressive status. And so what we're hoping to do is take the standard workflow that you would see for brain tumors that, uh, for these patients that come to Mass General and see how we can complement that with our liquid biopsy approaches. So here we have our patient arrive. There's a scan that identifies something that's suspicious. The patient's presenting with uh, symptoms. Brian will go in. Surgery will be performed. Genetic analysis will be done on that primary tumor sample. Then the patient will undergo a secondary surgery and have chemo and radiation. For follow-up... There may be a symptom that's showing up on the scan again. We're not exactly sure what that is. Is that some secondary effect of the chemo and radiation that's causing some inflammation on the scan or has the tumor truly occurred? And so now the physician needs to decide, do I want to have additional chemotherapy? Do I want to have surgery? And Is there anything else to guide me other than simply this picture in the scan? And so this is where we're hoping a blood test would be able to help understand and better guide this patient's treatment. So the first question that we asked is, are there CTCs in blood? Glioblastoma doesn't metastasize. It's about 1% of the cancer patients have metastasis in glioblastoma. So why would there be any circulating tumor cells in the peripheral blood of these patients? So Brian had led this work when he was a postdoc with James Sullivan in the Haber Maheshwaran lab. And one of the things that he was able to discover is that there were in fact CTCs in patient blood. So this is a picture of Berent, um, uh, postdoc in my group, has further advanced some of the detection that we've been doing. But here's just a picture that Berent took of some of the CTCs that we're seeing in glioblastoma that we've isolated with the iChip. So the work that Brian and James had discovered was that there are large pleomorphic cells in glioblastoma, they have infrequent positivity for Chi 67, and that they have dual IF and DNA fish to validate that these CTCs do in fact match the tumor cells that were in the primary tumor of the patient. And then the other thing is that they were able to do single cell sequencing of these CTCs to both match with the primary tumor, but also to characterize these tumors as more mesenchymal and phenotype, regardless of how the primary tumor was initially characterized. But the thing that was really carrying me when I was thinking about using this blood test to help address some of the needs in the clinic for these patients is the detection rate that we had in that initial study. So for all of the patients that were evaluated at all time points, the detection rate was about 30%. And so when you're thinking of a clinical assay, 30% it's good, but it's really not great. And as an engineer wanting to see what can we do to further increase that detection rate with the circulating tumor cells? Are there things that we can do with the assay or the technology? But also, are we overlooking something else that might be happening in the blood? At the same time, I think the, the field of liquid biopsy has just been exploding. We've been learning more about ctDNA, as well as these exosomes and extracellular vesicles. Now, unfortunately, in glioblastoma, CT DNA is often detected at less than 10%. It's one of the Um, most rare ctDNA detection rates for all cancers, but this field of exosomes was really exploding and there was really exciting data that was happening in glioblastoma. So what my group had done was gone to say, well, we really like looking at these functional CTCs. We don't want to forget about these CTCs, but we want to come up with a synergistic and complementary assay, because as I look at all of these cancer cells, for every one cell, I often see lots of other tiny vesicles blebbing off of them. Here is a breast cancer CTC, and under SEM you can see the entire surface is coated with these tiny vesicles. This is a glioblastoma CTC that has very large oncosomes shedding off, and it's postulated that every individual cancer cell can shed up to 10,000 vesicles a day. So when you're thinking about signal-to-noise and trying to pull that out, the idea of complementing the CTCs with these vesicles was an exciting one to me as a technologist. So to give you a little bit more background on these extracellular vesicles, all cells will release them to varying degrees. They can be found in plasma, urine, saliva, breast milk, CSF, and blood. And as I mentioned before, the nomenclature widely varies. And there are many different emerging roles in cell-cell communication. Um, and it was only first discovered that tumor-specific RNA was carried in these exosomes in 2008. Right now, though, what it's thought is that these exosomes can contain all different types of RNA, some DNAs, proteins, cytokines, as well as lipids. Now, extracellular vesicles on this technology is not specific to thinking about how we could treat cancer patients, but there are a host of other diseases and medical conditions that a technology that's able to pull these out may have additional benefit to patients. So I want to give you a brief overview for how um, extracellular vesicles are traditionally isolated, both in the clinic and in the lab, and then tell you about how our technology is a little bit different. So the first thing, the most common way to do this is ultracentrifugation. It's just simply using the concept that these vesicles are extraordinarily tiny. They range from 50 nanometers, and sometimes uh, the really large ones are um, thought to be as large as one micron. So the thought is that if you just do ultracentrifugation, you can have all of the really tiny ones you are just doing a density separation for these vesicles based on size. But if you recall, I said all cells in your body are going to be releasing these vesicles, so you're going to be pulling all of those vesicles down. So if you want to do some of the really cool things that we can do downstream for lipid biopsy products, having all that background may be challenging. Also, magnetic beads can be used where you put antibodies specific for antigens on the surface that can then be put into your uh, biofluid, whether it's plasma, blood serum, um, or urine, and then pull out vesicles based on a specific target on their membrane. And lastly, there's a lot of um, commercial kits that are out there in the market where they are columns where you can simply put your uh, product into the column. It is uh, thought to pull out the exosomes. A lot of these are black box columns, so you don't really know exactly how they're working, but you can look at the output product and look to see how many contaminating proteins are there, what is the efficiency of isolation. And so when we looked at these and tried using all of these in our lab, we felt that many of them were time-intensive, like ultracentrifugation. Some of them had low yield based on what we put in theirs um, with spiking experiments. And there was also a lot of contamination with other proteins. So since recycling is really cool right now, what we want to do is look at one of our early circulating tumor cell technologies that I had shared with you at the very beginning, which is that herringbone micromixer, and see, can we use that to pull out tumor-specific exosomes? So our goal is not to get every exosome and extracellular vesicle in your body. We just want to get your tumor-related exosomes, and we just want to get as many of them as possible with very little background. And so the way this herringbone chip works is we have these staggered herringbone grooves and what they do is create anisotropic flow. And what that simply means is that whether you're, when your serum or plasma or urine is traveling through the device, these ridges are going to pull and cause the liquid and fluid to twist and turn as it travels through. So it's going to be traveling in these micro vortices as it goes through. Why do we want microvortices is because we're coating this whole surface with antibodies against the tumor-specific vesicles. So we want to draw those vesicles up against the surface, have only the tumor-specific ones stay, and all of the rest of the product and proteins continue on. So we uh, worked to modify this chip so that we can isolate out the tumor-specific vesicles. Here's just a uh, SEM, SEM of some tumor vesicles from a breast cancer patient. And then we wanted to evaluate Using RNA-Seq, David Ting's lab is leading this effort, um, and as well as looking at the protein, with, uh, working with Willie Haas at Mass General Hospital. So one of the other things that we wanted to do is there's lots of interesting functional assays that can also be done with vesicles. Now, um, there's been a lot of interesting work looking at cell-cell communication, as well as priming certain areas for cancer cells to land. So we now have these vesicles attached on the chip, but if we wanted to do these functional things, we need to be able to get them off. So Eduardo Riatagi, who's a postdoc in my lab, who's now faculty at the Ohio State, he had developed a nano coating that was thermally responsible. We wanted to be able uh, responsive. We wanted to be able to release these vesicles without doing any enzymatic changes or adding any chemicals, but simply raise the temperature from room temperature to physiological temperature. And when you do that, you can release the vesicles in less than a minute. We can then recover them. We can either do our sequencing prep or we can also do functional studies, like culturing them with the CTCs that are also isolated. We then thought we had a great technology and things were going to be moving forward. And so we took parental cells that were isolated from a GBM patient here at Mass General Hospital and put them through the chip. We had optimized our antibody selection. Things were looking great. We had 90 percent capture of these patient-derived GBM cells. We then took those vesicles that that same cell line was releasing and put them through the chip and found out it actually doesn't work well at all for these vesicles. And the biophysical properties for these small vesicles are very different as they go through this microfluidic device. And so what we needed to do was try to overcome the steric hindrance that occurs between these vesicles and the surface of the device so that they can come in closer contact to those antibodies. So that microvortices and that mixing helped bring them in some level to contact. But what we need to do is raise those antibodies even higher into the fluid flow so that we can maximize capture. So what we did was test a variety of different linker lengths for these antibodies so that we could find that one sweet spot that worked for a multitude of different cancer types where we can maximize the capture of our vesicles. So we, have our, we tested a variety of different antibodies that were specific to glioblastoma as well as doing different cocktails of antibodies and making sure that our technology was giving us again that enrichment of tumor-specific vesicles in comparison to other technologies that are on the market. Now one of the things that we noticed, sorry there's a little delay on the slides was that when uh, we were testing out different antibodies, the way our chips work is we, we can run these chips in series. Since it's just flow through, we can run one chip and we can have antibodies on that chip and then we can have another chip with a different antibody on it. So as we're screening different antibodies often we run multiple chips together. When we were doing this, we were noticing that antibody B was having much greater capture But then when we switched the order and had antibody B first, we actually lost a lot of that capture benefit that we had seen previously when it was placed secondary in series. And so we were quickly learning that order was important, and then we're trying to ask, why is order important? What's going on inside the system? And so the thought was that we have this fouling that's occurring because there are so many vesicles, and putatively, many of them are coming from platelets, which may be activated and sticky, and they're just coating the entirety of our surface. And we think this may be a problem whether you're using a column or beads, that you have these very sticky vesicles. So then, when we tried to put just a blank chip with an irrelevant antibody and our same antibody, whether it was just standalone or second in series, and we saw every time we saw an improvement after having a blank chip ahead of that specific antibody capture. So does it matter what that blank chip looks like? Should we target something that goes after platelet-specific vesicles? Should we continue to use an irrelevant antibody? Should we just have a blank functionalized chip? Or should we just pick a plastic chip out of a box and not do anything to it and put it in series? And does that help pull out some of that non-specific message that was uh, biasing our data? And so we put our antibodies there. We had a control with an IgG chip as the secondary chip. And then when we looked at it, Uh, We were pleased to see that just picking that chip out of a box and not putting any additional effort and energy onto it, that's what's shown here in blue, had the best capture yield when we had that that blank chip. So we just have referred to as a sponge that happens beginning before our assay, and we think that's the third element that helps our technology work really well. So we have the chaotic mixing, we have the antibody linking, and then depleting out all of this nonspecific message, this just highly sticky and adhesive um, by using a high surface area chip before it enters into our actual detection uh, chip later on. So we then start to look to see what is our capture performance. So when we spike in our vesicles, we can see that we get 60% of our vesicles out relative to just using an irrelevant antibody on our chip. And we can also look at the uh, tumor-specific copy numbers at an RNA level. And when we start to think about early detection, we want to see what our limit of detection is. How low can we go? Now, we're used to doing this in circulating tumor cells because we need to be able to pick out one cell in a billion. Can we pick out just a few hundred EVs out of a um, milliliter of plasma? Now, this isn't normally the case, but we truly don't know how many tumor-related vesicles are in circulation. And if we do want to start thinking about screening, it would be nice to know what is the detection limit of our device. And so what we had determined literally spiking in individual vesicles after um, visualizing them on a confocal is that we can go down to detecting 100 vesicles in 100 microliters of plasma or about 1,000 vesicles in a milliliter of plasma. And so considering that it's estimated that for most cancer patients that there are a billion vesicles, we're pleased that our limit detection is so sensitive uh, for these tiny particles. So... Now we want to be able to compare our technology versus what everyone else is, is using in the field. And I also don't want to make sh- sound like a, a giant commercial for a technology. We think that each technology can have its uh, particular application um, for what your goal output is. Um, but for us, we wanted to see versus ultracentrifugation. That's what's termed as input here. When we take our input sample, ultracentrifuge out the vesicles, we look at the ratio of our tumor marker at an RNA level over our platelet marker, which we find to be a good background uh, marker to study. Um, and we have little enrichment of our tumor-specific message, which is somewhat expected based on other data that's published. When we use an irrelevant antibody on our chip, we have about that same enrichment. When we use a single antibody, we have a 100-fold enrichment of the tumor-specific message. And then when we use a cocktail of antibody, that goes up slightly more. We can image all the vesicles that are captured on the chip if you ever want to do an image-based assay. And we can compare the same antibodies that we use on our microfluidic chip, putting them on magnetic beads with the linker advantage to make sure that we're still getting that increase of enrichment of our tumor-specific message, and again, relative to ultracentrifugation. So that's great, it's a lot of engineering validation, but how does it actually work in patient samples? So again, we're trying to see in glioblastoma, can we use this to try to monitor how a patient is responding to their therapy? So one of the specific mutations that's known to be present in a percentage of glioblastoma patients is the EGFRV3 mutation. So what we wanted to see is can we pick up that mutation from plasma from these patients? So we had six patients known to have the EGFRV3 mutation. What we did was we used digital PCR. Um, So I don't know if if you're familiar with the output plot. If you're not, I just want to quickly talk you through it. When you have a positive dot here, that means you have one drop that's positive for the specific mutation that you're looking at. So here we've done a repeat of our sample. so we've just taken that patient's plasma, we ultracentrifuged it, and looked to see just using standard methods can we pick up the EGFR mutation. And so the first round we were not able to, the second round we had one positive droplet, and then we had thousands of uh, positive droplets for our background message. We then looked at what flowed out of the chip and we did ultracentrifugation as well. We had a slight increase in our detection, but again, very low levels of detection for the EGFRV3 mutation. But when we use our herringbone chip, we can see that we have significantly increased our detection of the EGFRV3 mutation, but also just as important, our background level is really low so that we can have really amplified tumor-specific message. So here's just the results for our patient samples and our age-matched healthy controls picking up the EGFRV3 mutation. Now this is work that others had done prior to us. Um, So what we wanted to see is what can we do in addition by having the technology. The first thing we wanted to do was the RNA sequencing, and again, this was done by David Ting's lab, where here we have all of our patient samples versus our aged matched healthy controls. And What I'm showing you are the top 100 differentially expressed genes from these exosomes and microvesicles. Um, and we really had, uh, for this cohort, we had over 5,000 significantly differentially expressed genes. I'm only showing you 100 because I feel like whether it's 100 or 5,000, you're not going to be able to read my genes. But you can just see that we see some major differences between the two. The other thing we wanted to see is are we picking up different genes when we do the microfluidics versus when we're doing the ultracentrifugation. And so here we have the same sample split between our microfluidic isolation and our ultracentrifugation of that same patient sample. And again, in this case, we have significantly differentially expressed genes that are being pulled out using the microfluidics. But when you look at significantly differentially expressed genes, often, especially in vesicles, you see genes that are related to inflammation and just a sick person. And are they specific RNAs related to the tumor? And so what we had done was gone through all of the tumor databases and picked out all of the genes that are related and found in glioblastoma tumors. See, are those transcripts found in our vesicles? And so we were pleased to find about 50 of those GBM specific transcripts found in our vesicles. And so here you can see um, we've run up to about 45, uh, well, 47 patients now where we can see the um, RNA sequencing profile of our exosomes relative to our healthy donors for these genes that are coming from the tumor databases. And so the other thing that we often get. Are a lot of our data, does it matter at what time point are you drawing for these samples? Now, in GBM, you're never going to have an early detection assay, and this session is titled Early Detection. But the question does come up, do you see vesicles because these patients have had really aggressive treatment? You've gone in, you've had an aggressive surgery, you have radiation that has permeabilized the blood-brain barrier. And so what we've needed to do really for our grant applications but also for our own sound judgment, do we see vesicles and even circulating tumor cells before any intervention is done? If we take blood and plasma, what can we find before Brian even goes in there for that initial biopsy? So these are all pre-treatment samples, and we can pick up the extracellular vesicles from these patients, as well as circulating tumor cells, and we can see the gene signatures. We can also see the variations between these patients. What we can also do is longitudinally follow these patients, where we can have, again, here are healthy donors, and then these are the sequencing profiles from the vesicles, where we have a time point A that was pre-biopsy, And then after the biopsy happens, 24 hours later, we do see an increase of tumor-specific message in the circulation. And then after the patient initiates chemotherapy, we do see a decrease in some specific markers as well as an increase in others. So one of the big questions in glioblastoma was that one that I presented to you at the beginning. Can you start to better um, complement the clinical metrics that are used to determine has a patient's tumor returned? Is it true progression of that tumor or could it be that phenomenon of pseudoprogression, progression where it's just an inflammatory response that's showing up on the scan? So this is a very small cohort of patients, and this is early data. We're still annotating all of the patients and trying to look at how they can be binned. But what we do see is that we're excited that there do seem to be some differences in gene signatures between these patients are the ones that have stable disease, these are the patients who are declining, and then these are the patients who look like they're declining on the scan, but they're actually were determined to have pseudoprogression. So we now have enrolled 50 patients that we're following from the time of their biopsy, initial biopsy all the way throughout their treatment, and we're hoping as we increase our data set and have the full clinical annotation notes, we'll have more information as to whether or not we can use these signatures from these vesicles to better sort out these populations. So, I think the, the most obvious question is I led with the circulating tumor cell work and now is was talking to you about vesicles. Can we do these at the same time point? Can we truly go to that blood test that allows us to look at all of these at the same time? And so we're starting to do this for our patients where we can look at the vesicles and the CTCs as they're going through their treatment at each time point that blood is drawn. And so you can see for this patient at time point A, we see some signatures where they're much higher in the vesicles than the CTCs, Other that are higher than the CTCs and the vesicles and so on and so forth as you go through our list of genes that we've highlighted here. Later on you can see that for some of the signals they go away with time, but also there's this interesting dynamic change for uh, for this particular patient. Uh, Further what's interesting is that when we had our detection rate of about 30% when we were looking at counting those individual CTCs by staining them, if we then go back and look at for those patients that didn't have any CTCs by staining, so they're referred to as CTCs IF negative, we didn't see any CTCs in the blood, but when we look at their RNA sequencing of the bulk population that came out of the chip, we are seeing tumor-specific profiles. So either our staining assay is incomplete and there may be other markers that we could have, and again, strengthening our approach of not making any assumptions ahead of time about what markers might be on those circulating tumor cells. Um, But we are still picking up tumor-specific message. Now we have for each patient their CT signatures as well as their EV signatures, as as well as whether or not they have whole cells visible by staining inside their blood. And so what we're seeing for this dual CTC and EV assay is that for this one particular patient that we followed for a year and a half, we can see their number of CTCs in their blood, which is shown by this black line over time. So you can see um, this is after the patient's initial surgery, a low level of CTCs in their blood, but as the patient begins to um, uh, have their tumor return, the number of CTCs increases and then decreases with the second line of treatment and then increases again. At that same time, in addition to those counts, we have the molecular information for some of the time points where we have both the EV profiles as well as the circulating tumor cell profiles. So we're doing this now for all of our patients, hoping that as we go through all of the information that we can start to pick up some unique signatures that can better help guide these patients. We're not anticipating that we're going to do RNA sequencing on every patient that comes through. We're hoping that we can find a small list of genes that we can then translate to our digital droplet PCR assay that we can run in just an hour rather than waiting the two weeks for our sequencing to come back. So when we start thinking about our assay and bringing it to the clinic, one of the things that, that I've learned working here at Mass General for a little over a decade is that Thinking about your sample from the time of when it's drawn to when it ends up for testing is critically important. Blood is a living tissue. There are many um, viable cells that are in that that are very responsive to the shear stresses and movements as the sample is brought from the laboratory to your benchtop. Um, the time between when you draw the blood and um, centrifuge it down to isolate the plasma. All of these things are critical for when you think about having a very rigorous and robust assay that can be used across all patients. We also can do some pretty cool things with these circulating tumor cells that in addition to the expression profiling, uh, we've also made some roads uh, culturing these CTCs. And if you want to culture these CTCs, you can't fix the blood as soon as it's drawn if you want to do any of these functional assays. So part of my background is in biopreservation. What we wanted to see is can we do something to lock in the viability and status of all of the cells in that blood tube, because if we really want to have this shared to everyone and thinking about even early detection, we need to be able to have that assay be really rigorous and reproducible. So first, I'm going to show you what happens to blood if you don't lock into that. Um, And as an engineer, this frustrates me to no end. We have all these aggregation, Uh, of platelets here that leads to clotting, clogs up our microfluidic devices immediately because if you think about our our device channels are are thinner than your human hair. So we need to block this natural response of aggregation and clotting. We also have activation of uh, cytokines. We also have echinocytes form on those red blood cells which change how they flow through our device. And then we also have these Um, oxidative burst and neutrophils shoot out nests because they're unhappy that they've been removed from the body. So this is a multi-year project that had a few different publications that came out. But I'm just going to jump to the the punchline for what we are thinking now is the strategy to help preserve the viability for these samples. Right now for 48 hours, but we're trying to lengthen that. So uh, Quick summary that's a little bit short of of the whole complexity of what we're doing, but we're storing the blood at 4 degrees C, and we add a little bit of tyrophibin to stop the platelet aggregation. And so now when you take our zero-hour analysis of our sample, and this is our CTC yield, when we actually do this combination of cold tyrofibin and EDTA right before we're running it, we actually maintain statistically the same yield of CTCs as well as our RNA integrity up to two days after draw is still available. Um, so we're really excited about this. We're continuing to build upon this work so that we can have a universal blood tube that I think will help everyone that's interested in liquid biopsy, whether you're looking at CTCs, ctDNA, or the vesicles. So to summarize, I briefly talked a little bit about the CTC iChip for isolation of brain CTCs. Daniel will be speaking later in the session uh, more about that iChip. chip um, But for us right now in glioblastoma, with our improvements that we've had in the assay, our CTC dissection rate is 50%. Um, I've also shared with you our technology for isolating, isolating extracellular vesicles. So in this case, it's a positive selection to enrich tumor EVs. We process typically about a mil of plasma or serum. We can process as little as 100 microliters of plasma or serum, or we can go longer. If you do larger volumes, it just takes more time. Um, We have enrichment of tumor-related genes in all samples, and um, we do believe it's possible to expand into early detection. Right now, we're looking at some early-stage pancreatic samples with David Ting and Rebecca, who's in the audience right now as well, David's postdoc, uh, trying to see what kind of signatures can we get from pancreatic patients from their vesicles. So what I hope to share is that microfluidics are really enabling technology for cancer care. Largely, my talk focused on a specific patient group. In this case, it was glioblastoma patients where we're hoping that we can use the CTCs and vesicles in their circulation to guide their treatment selection. And then once that treatment is optimized, that we can do real-time monitoring of their blood so that we can make sure they're on their best treatment. But we also hope that we can keep pushing the limits of our technology, both at the eye chip as well as looking at vesicles, for early detection of these patients. So you can have a high risk screening group and have them come through and have their blood processed on our technologies as well. So for acknowledgments, there's a lot of people that were involved in this work. I was just really honored to be able to be the one to share it today. First and foremost, I'd like to thank all of the patients that continuously donate their blood at Mass General Hospital so that we can even start to evaluate whether or not our technology is working. Um, I work with a really phenomenal group of people that is co-led with Brian Nahed for all of the glioblastoma work. Eduardo Riategui had done the development of the the herringbone chip. Barrent has been doing all of the latest assays in glioblastoma. Uh, Keith Wong had done all of the cell preservation work and the blood tube work along with Shannon Tessier. Um, All of this wouldn't be possible without the Collaboration and mentorship of the Biomem Center and the MGH Cancer Center, all of the CTC work is led by Mehmet Toner, Daniel Haber, and Shama Maheshwaran. Um, In the EV space for the vesicles and glioblastoma, Bob Carter and Xander Brakefield have just been really instrumental in guiding our work here. And of course, I'd like to thank our funding sources as well that make this work possible. So with that, I'd like to thank you and see if there are any questions. it's It's pretty remarkable that fifty percent of these patients have uh, circulating tumor cells, and yet, as we know, glioblastoma doesn't metastasize uh what you're thinking about that so So there are two thoughts that we postulate on this. The first is that patients that have an aggressive... So glioblastoma is a very aggressive tumor, and do they truly have a normal blood-brain barrier at that point when they have this aggressive tumor present that may allow some of these circulating tumor cells to pass through? Now, because there is the fact that these cancer cells don't metastasize in these patients... One thought is that, you know, the, the initial study found that most of these cells were not positive for CHI-67 and in my own work in prostate cancer about 80% of the cells are already pre that are in circulation so they could still enter circulation but they just don't seed and go anywhere. Um, another thought that is out there in terms of the presence of them in circulation is that because glioblastoma is such an aggressive disease that potentially they are there in circulation. They may have seeded somewhere, but there just isn't enough time for the metastasis to grow because these patients, unfortunately, um, die so quickly. Now, they cite, some of my colleagues, you know, some of the organ donation studies when organs were donated from these patients, were then in the the recipients um, that tumors had developed in those recipients from patients with glioblastoma. But I think it's all anecdotal, and right now we just don't know. Um, And that's why I think we try to be as rigorous as possible when we see these uh, cells in circulation to make sure do they have the mutations that uh, match the primary tumor? Are we absolutely confident that they have the same signatures? Because it was quite surprising to see that frequency of detection of CTCs in circulation. Great talk Shannon. Uh, given that the tumor is heterogeneous mm-hmm. and you've showed some nice data about the comparison of the ultra versus the eye chip that you okay. did. So if you're trying to isolate these extracellular vesicles based on only EGFR or maybe a couple of markers, would you worry that you're actually enrichment, you know, enriching for a certain cell population as compared to, you know, the heterogeneous the yeah. GBM and other types of cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was the reason that we moved away from the iChip initially. And so right now we feel that we're using this to learn more about the underlying biology of the tumor, but there's much more to learn. So we're currently using five different antibodies that are specific to glioblastoma, but I'm certain there are probably more vesicles that we're missing. We also have since working with jean yves Boulin, we're doing some... Um, immune-signature-specific chips. So in addition to looking at the tumor signatures, we're also looking at what are the T-cell exosomes telling us? What are our macrophage exosomes telling us? But really, because I'm an engineer, it's still not good enough, and we have another technology that we're developing right now, which, uh, for anyone that's a technologist in the room, we're using viscoelastic inertial and secondary flows to pull out the vesicles and then doing single vesicle analysis so that we don't have to worry about pulling out particular subpopulations, but then we can use bioinformatics and machine learning algorithms to pull out all of those specific things. And ultimately that will be cheaper as well because antibodies are very expensive. So, so you can actually do single vesicle analysis? We, we don't know yet. So what we're doing is we're preparing that for that, that, that level. But we're hoping that by barcoding these vesicles, putting them into droplets, that we will be able to get single vesicle analysis. Have you actually, well, I guess you don't have this with GBMs, but any other tumor, have you been able to use vesicles to follow the development of resistance? So we haven't done that yet. Um, I think that's an obvious question to ask as we expand out into other tumors. And so we are just beginning to do that now. And so I don't have an answer for you, but I'm hopeful that we would be able to do something like that, because I think it would bring a lot of value uh, to patient care.